The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. Welcome in. If you're out there, we uh, want to welcome you to come in and find a good seat. You know, these days, uh, encouraging news is not always... Um, easy to come by. I remember last week I was uh, coming here and, and, and hearing about the burning of Bibles and crosses and things like that, and I was just very discouraged uh, with where things are headed, and kind of uh, just opened that opened up to me the vista of what I knew was, th- was there all along, and that is just the spiritual element of this, it's not merely a political thing that's that's happening out there in the major cities, but there is a real spiritual element to what is going on, and so um, you know you can kind of be looking long and hard for a good word. And uh, Brother Mike asked me if he could share a little bit of an encouraging word. I think so. I'm going to ask him to do that just now before we have our pastoral prayer. So Mike, you want to come here, or stay there, or whatever you want to do. Yeah, you can be heard better if you're up here. Thanks. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Just want you to know that as I was up this morning having a cup of coffee and happened to check on the news to see what was going on, something very encouraging happened. And it touched my heart, and I said I had to share it. And I hope you'll all share it. I don't know the background to it. I don't know enough about what went on in it. But some of you may already know that somewhere around, excuse me, 10,000 to 14,000 people gathered in Portland or somewhere up there. Don shaking his head yes, so he picked up on it. And it was about, it was a rally, a Christian rally of Christians. And and the theme was, let us worship. And I said, wow, thank you, Lord. We need that. So they had the fellow who led that on the news this morning. And he gave some good news about that and that this could be a Christian movement in our nation to counter a lot of what's going on, just starting with the one point of let us worship like we are. In other words, many people can't gather because of size and limited numbers and what the positions their churches have taken. So I thanked the Lord this morning. I said, thank you, Lord. Answer to some of the prayers we have on a Wednesday night or Saturday morning here with the men and others. So just wanted to share that. That was uplifting. I hope it is to you. I think we all need to take our stand individually with our mouths for the Lord, for what he wants us to do, not with government and maybe not even what we personally might want to do, but what the Lord guides us to do. So thank you. All right, thank you, Mike. Good to have a good word of something going on positive out in society. We held the scripture reading until now. If you would turn to Deuteronomy 22, please. Deuteronomy 22. Before we get there, Deuteronomy 22, I've noticed there's been more leftover notes and bulletins in the back. And I encourage you to take those. They don't do us any good sitting here all week until they're recycled the next week. So 
hope that you'll avail yourself of those. I know they're online now, which they weren't always before. Since March, that's been the case. So maybe you like to use them that way, and that's fine. Um, I just don't want them to go to waste, as it were. All right, so be, 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 uh, feel free to take one on your way out if you have it on your way in. Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. So in the easy cases, don't be lazy. In the hard cases, don't be lazy. <laughs> Take it in and uh, care for it because that's what you would want somebody to do for your own uh, possessions and things that have been lost and hopefully found. You shall do the same with his donkey, verse 3 says, and so you shall do with his garment. With any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. Now, just pause. This does assume that you're going to go looking for your lost things. So if you've lost a dish in the kitchen, go there and look, okay? If you have something in the lost and you've lost, there's a lost and found back there, you can find it, okay? This is a real practical application uh, of this passage, but uh, part of the law of Moses. Verse 4, You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. There's basic neighborliness here. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Brother, there's that word again. Where's there? there he is, that word again, yes. Um, even in jest, this is not tasteful. It's not appropriate. It's not funny. Um, and it bothers me personally when I see that happen because there's an ongoing principle here. It's not just something that can be ignored. Oh, because it's in the law of Moses, that means it's totally irrelevant now. No, we understand we're not under the regime of the law of Moses, but there are principles there which reflect the holiness of God and His design of humanity. And this is all the more critical today you know, that uh, boys be boys and girls be girls. And, uh, you know, pink and dolls is good for, you know, girls and, and blue and cars and trucks and dinosaurs are good for boys. I mean, uh, it's just, you know, the basics here. So, yeah, we don't apologize for that, brother. Thank you. So, uh, verse number 6, if a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Here's a little bit of forward-looking thought in terms of the uh, propagation of the animal kingdom. Verse 8, When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from the roof. If nothing else, you would be concerned about your own children falling from the roof. So have, uh, have the fence there, have the railing there so that doesn't happen. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. They don't match. They don't carry the same load. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts such as wool and linen mixed together. You shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing 
which you cover yourself. And then a more difficult or touchy subject here in verses 13 and following. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman. When I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him. And they shall find him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel. And he shall be, and she, sorry, shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house. And the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman because she did not cry out in the city and the man because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside and the betrothed young woman cried out. That's the assumption. But there was no one to save her. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed and he seizes her and lies with her and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father fifty shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. May God be honored with that, the reading of His Word. Uh, there are some of those uh, segments of that chapter, particularly oh, around verse 9 through 12, that the modern application of that or how we carry that forward is a little obscure. And I'm not going to say that I have all the answers for that right now, but something that we certainly could uh, profit and think about as we do that. All right, we turn our attention then to another portion of Scripture, which is where we are studying together back in 1 Corinthians. So we leave the uh, interlude in Matthew 24 and 25 behind uh, this uh, from last week, the last two weeks actually, and we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as we continue our study of this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. We said this was the second letter. Uh, it's the first uh, extant, the first that is um, inspired, and so we call it 1 Corinthians. But there have been some communication back and forth between Paul and the others in Corinth there. And, so, and they, in fact, had written to him and asked him some questions. And we saw that he began to answer those questions starting in verse number 1 of chapter 7. He uh, addressed in chapter 7 all 
40 uh, verses, the concerns about marriage, relationships of men and women here in chapter 7. And so Paul addresses that in that chapter. And now he moves on to a new question in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning, he says. And you'll see the same thing in chapter 12, 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Uh, he talks about the gospel in chapter 15. Uh, chapter 16, now concerning the collection for the saints. So he's addressing their questions one by one in the letter. Chapter 8, the subject matter has to do with food offered to idols. It was a conundrum for the people in Corinth. Some thought one way and some thought another as to how they should handle it. So they asked the Apostle Paul, what do we do in this case with these food offered uh, foods offered to idols, particularly meats probably, but others as well. Today, we don't have a thought about food offered to idols, do we? So what was the problem for the Corinthians? Well, let me read the 13 verses here. Then we'll talk about some background material on the chapter and a few key ideas that we have to learn before we can successfully interpret the message of Paul here. Starting in chapter 8, verse number 1. Now, concerning the things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him, by God. Verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother to stumble. Now, in Corinth, unlike... Well, somewhat unlike uh, Ann Arbor, somewhat unlike, idols were ubiquitous. Okay? They were everywhere. They were surrounded by a society that was pagan, polytheistic, superstitious, and highly concerned about evil spirits. This is not something that we think much about, I think, in our culture because it's, it's, our culture has been built on a Judeo-Christian ethic from the beginning. 
And so we don't have these kind of strange fetishes and these you know things about evil spirits. Now I'm not saying that's it's universally true, but I'm saying generally you know we don't. But when you go to some other place and they're all concerned about evil spirits and the ancestors and all of this, it's a totally different mindset in which you live. And so we have to kind of put ourselves into that mindset to see what these Christians are going through. For example, if a if a demonic spirit were to uh, invade a piece of food or meat, then if you ate that, they supposed, then you could be taken over. Uh, the demonic spirit could enter the person who eats the meat. Uh, know, know that there's no understanding in that culture of the idea that we have, the truth that we know, that if one is indwelt by the Spirit of God, a demon cannot indwell that person. Okay? Of course, Satan can bother us. I mean, he bothered Job, to be sure, but he never indwelt Job or any any strange thing like that. So, idols were everywhere, superstitions, religions, polytheism, paganism, uh, the occult, the mystery religions, oracles, all kinds of things. So you take your meat now, you sacrifice it to a your your favorite god. That would cleanse the meat from the evil spirits, or perhaps just the idea is that the sacrifice was to appease your your god of choice or the god you needed to appeal to for whatever your crops, your family, your your future, uh, or whatever it might be, and you would appease that god or seek some special favor from that imaginary him or her. And the sacrifice was done by offering a piece of meat, say, meat usually, on an altar, which is basically like a grill with a fire underneath it. What was not burned up on the altar was consumed at a feast for the god or goddess. Uh, Perhaps it was prepared specifically for that purpose, an official worship meal or function. Or perhaps it was prepared for a social event. Uh, These... um, Temples, many temples in places like Corinth were, well, as you can imagine, buildings suitable for a large crowd of people so they would become something of a cultural center. So you would have special events there. Family events could be there. Birthday parties could be held at these uh, temples. And so you have all of the you know, kind of baggage attached to that. The temple, the... the uh, the God, the aura of the idol was never totally absent from that. And inevitably, there would be meat left over. They you know, slaughtered a whole cow, say, or something. There would be meat left over and they would sell that at the meat market. Didn't just let it go to waste. You know, you've got to get double use out of it, right? Worship your God and, and eat part of it for the worship and then sell the meat. And So you could be, as a Christian, totally uninvolved in the worship of a false god, of a pagan god, and yet find yourself buying and eating from the grocery store meat that was sacrificed to an idol. So you're looking down through the meat label and you're looking at it and you're saying it's grass-fed and it's free-range and cage-free and non-GMO. It's good. Everything's good. There's no growth hormones. I'm sold. And then it says on the label, sacrifice to an idol. Oh boy, you know, what do I do now, Paul? Uh, 
You know, perhaps you would even be invited to a meal at the temple of the idol because that's where so-and-so's birthday party was. What are you going to do? So, chapters 8, 9, and 10 address this. More so 8 and 10. There's a little bit of a different subject happening in chapter 9, but it's connected and we'll try to fit that all together as we come to it. So, some Christians would not eat this meat because it was associated with the idol, you can imagine, they would feel like, boy, this I can't have any association with this idol. So some Christian people with very sensitive consciences would say, no, none of that for me. And others weren't concerned for reasons that we'll see in the text. And you know, they would just say, give me a fork and knife. I'm going after this steak, you know. Um, So how do you handle a situation like this? How do you handle issues that are like this? And we have issues like this today, but not this particular one. And so we have to kind of put together all the principles and try to get them in our minds so that when we run into these things, which we may at any time uh, here in the church or out in your life, you'll be able to successfully navigate and please God in that. And let me be quick to say here that... uh, these issues can sometimes be somewhat befuddling. Uh, They're not always immediately apparent, especially if you aren't as far along in your walk with Christ as maybe you should be or you could be or you will be in a few years from now. And so you, um, you you might think, well, look, just tell me what I should do. Should I, you know, A or B? If it's right, can I just do it? If it's wrong, I shouldn't do it. Okay, yes, that's true, but there are things you can do that are right things that, you can do it in the wrong context and it makes them sinful. And so you have to be very wise about these things. So there are four factors that I've pulled out of this section that we need to be conversant with in order to be able to address such questions properly and what they needed to address the question of idle meat eating. And the four factors are knowledge, conscience, liberty, and love. Knowledge, conscience, liberty, and love. You've got to have a a handle on those. So what I've done in the first or second page of your notes is just to define those a little bit, just talk about them. And then we go on into the verses of the chapter and we notice that Paul relates these concepts to one another to help them to understand the right answer to their question. So first of all, knowledge. He talks about that beginning in verse number 1 concerning things offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Now, it's not clear if this is kind of um, a slogan again. Remember, we saw some slogans from the Corinthians earlier on, some kind of aphorisms that they had, uh, or if it's just the Apostle Paul acknowledging something that is true in the context of the Corinthian church. Uh, but we'll go with that latter that he's saying, look, we, we know something. So what is this knowledge? It's, it's, it's things that are cognitively known. Not necessarily, as our brother Dan just indicated, they're not necessarily things that have reached our feet, but they're at least up here. Uh, facts, realities, truths. And this knowledge can be correct or incorrect. I mean, you can have knowledge that's it's knowledge, but it's not true knowledge. Do you know what I'm saying by that? You can have facts that are in your brain that are not true facts or they're only true in certain contexts. Uh, You can have a fairly complete knowledge on a certain subject or somewhat limited knowledge or no knowledge at all. 
This knowledge can contain principles that are, that are well known. Maybe you know certain things. You know what you should do as a Christian. Like our brother was saying this morning, you know you should pray, but maybe you don't practice it that well. So it's knowledge. But it's practiced maybe well or maybe poorly. And you can use that knowledge well or you can use it in a damaging way as the passage will show. So that's knowledge. Then there's love. Next in my list. Knowledge, love, conscience, and liberty. Love is what I call the supreme Christian virtue. It marks God. We know God is love, right? God loved us and therefore we love Him. 1 John 4.9 tells us that. We are commanded to love our God supremely. And to love our neighbors as ourselves, Matthew 22, 37-40, our Lord Jesus makes that very clear. We're to love one another, John 13, 34. That's the mark of being a Christian disciple. Without love, there's no discipleship, if you will. Love never fails, the Bible tells us. John, or rather, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. God even directs us to love our enemies. As hard as that is, Matthew 5.44. We love our spouses and our children, our parents. Without love, Paul says, we are what? Yeah, nothing. We're empty. There's nothing there. Nothing of substance without love. Conscience is the third factor or idea that we have to have wrap our minds around here to help us understand these things. Conscience, it's a part of the immaterial being of every human. And it has to do with what you believe to be right or wrong. Now, that conscience can be rightly informed or badly informed. Sometimes parents build into their children wrong information and that influences their conscience so that they think things are wrong, are right that are wrong, or the reverse. That's happening at a breakneck pace, by the way, in our own society where right is taught to be wrong and wrong is taught to be right. Okay? So what I'm doing is I'm letting you in on the idea that the conscience is something that comes from God, but it can be altered. It can be damaged. can be... Uh, improved, certainly. So conscience is, it has to do with what you believe to be right and wrong. And it renders a verdict on the actions that you do or on, the say, the proposed actions. Should I do this? Well, my conscience wouldn't let me do that. So I should do this. Uh, it's based on God's initial creation of the conscience. Uh, if you want to, you can look at Romans chapter 2, just a few pages earlier in your Bible to see this. And that conscience is also informed by later learning and experience. Romans chapter 2. It's a capacity. It's an ability. It's something that does have some, you can say, initial programming from God, but that can be uh, corrupted. Uh, errors can be introduced into it, and it needs to be, you know, reflashed so that uh, you get the new, you know, the new programming back in there again, okay? Romans 2, uh, 15, 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, 
who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And in particular, this is going to be active on the day in which the God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. There will be a certain kind of stress, a certain kind of atmosphere in which the consciences of those standing before the judgment of God, because of the presence of God, their conscience will be quickly enlightened and brought back to what it should have been in the beginning and they will recognize that they have a major problem. But that conscience, if they're unbelievers, of course, that conscience is operational all the time. And Gentiles, speaking of unbelievers, those who do not have the law of Moses or any law of God, do by nature the things in the law. You know, they know that stealing is wrong. They know that murder is wrong. They know that cheating is wrong. You know, it's a sad thing when the when the morals of the world are actually better than the morals of God's people, or when they recognize some evil in the people of God as sometimes they delight to do. But this conscience, the moral law of God is the initial programming of the conscience as designed by God as part of the image of God in man. So when God said, let us make man in our image, He was including in that the certain moral knowledge that is built into every human. So where does it... Where And this is very important with apologetics if you're dealing with people uh, and, and asking the question, on what basis do you have a moral code? Where does it come from? Well, the, uh, the common answer today is it's, it's, a, it's a set of societal um, morals that have been agreed upon or come, at, you know, come to through evolution. And there's no stable, solid base, so that moral can change. People love that because... The morality can change as the whims of society change. There's no solid, eternal, stable basis for morality in their mind. But then when you ask them, well, okay, so is it all right then if, if, if society says it's okay for me to take your stuff, that I do that? Well, you know, not. I don't like that. Why don't you like that? Because you have a standard inside of you that tells you what right and wrong is and that standard was put there initially by God, not by evolution, not by societal agreement, you know, not by just common um, understanding. It's it's because God put it there in our in our very beings as part of the image of God in man. It's a part of all people. Now, there's no such thing as I understand as a person totally devoid of conscience, although it might be greatly damaged, even. Uh, people who are hardened criminals show the work of conscience in their heart when it comes to, uh, you know, if you say, well, if you murdered somebody, shouldn't I just be able to murder you? Well, no, I don't want to do that because, you know, that's not right. They want to live. Why? Because they have a conscience, at least in part as well, although it may be greatly damaged and greatly muted by a repeated pattern of sin. That, by the way, is one of the dangers. First uh, Timothy 4, 1 and 2 talks about people who have a seared conscience. A conscience which has been so, um, what's the word, crusted over. So scarred, maybe is a better word, that it just is, is, is 
It's like a scarred tissue. It's stiff and it doesn't operate correctly. It has no. It just is stuck, and uh, that does that does occur there, especially under the increasingly bad conditions of the future in which Paul says evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. They have a seared conscience. They'll forbid marriage, forbid the eating of certain foods. Uh, he talks about all that stuff like you know, not having love for family love for parents and children and, and uh, loving themselves, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All of these things are part of that whole picture. So we have knowledge, we have love, we have conscience. And then we have liberty. What about liberty? It's a common phrase these days to talk about liberty. I have the liberty to do this or to do that. It refers to the freedom of choice regarding a particular matter. Am I at liberty to choose this or am I at liberty to choose that other thing? And if you have the option to choose, then you have liberty. You have a level of freedom. Christian liberty, though, is more specific than general liberty. Christian liberty is that you have liberty in that area, but it's not merely a legal freedom to do so. It is something that has to do with divine law and righteousness. Among the things you can choose to do, they they must all be righteous things that we're talking about in Christian liberty. Otherwise, you do not have Christian liberty in those areas. Liberty also runs amok if you consider the choices that you have to be rights and you demand their exercise. I have my liberty. Well, that basically means, and I'm selfish about it, and that selfishness is what causes the wrong exercise of liberty to cause damage as in what Paul is speaking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So Paul speaks of these four concepts, but he doesn't speak of them in isolation from each other. He puts them all together. This is what kind of makes it complicated because you have kind of four dimensions going on. You can't just think of one of these things and say, look, pastor, just tell me if it's right or wrong. Okay, Make it easy. No, because there's knowledge and there's love and there's conscience and there's liberty. And you have to put them all together and look at this situation from all these angles. All four of these concepts must be mixed together in the right proportion to have a good Christian outcome. There are going to be problems if you have knowledge without love. He opens the passage with that in chapter 8, 1 through 3. You're going to have difficulties if you have a conscience without knowledge or liberty without love for others. And similarly, if you have liberty without knowledge, you're going to go astray. In fact, it's knowledge that opens up the possibilities of liberty. Uh, let me give an example. So Peter is there in Acts chapter 10 and he's in that state on the top of the roof and God sends him that vision of all the food. And Peter has never had anything common or unclean cross his lips. He's been a very fastidious Jewish person. And God reveals to him all these animals on this sheet let down from him. And he says, rise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, look, I've never done that before. And three times God does that to him, to instruct him that these foods are not unclean anymore and that he cannot reject Gentiles who eat those foods. He cannot reject them as unclean because of the foods that they eat. And so moments later, 
A representative from Cornelius, a Gentile, comes and says, hey, you must come and tell us the Gospel. Tell us the things that God has commanded you. And Peter realizes, hey, I can go in the home of that Gentile. I can even fellowship with them because knowledge, what God has revealed, has opened up an area of liberty to him that he did not know that he had. Okay, So that's what knowledge, true knowledge can do for us. But if you have... If you have liberty without having knowledge, so you think, then you're going to go astray as well. So any one of these that has a deficit in it can be a, can cause a problem. Okay, so it's to the relationship of these four things now that we turn in the passage before us. Look again at eight one through three. Now concerning things offered to idols, we remember their circumstances. Idols everywhere. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything as he I'm sorry, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So these three verses summarize the whole chapter. And then he unpacks the rest of in the rest of the chapter these ideas in more detail starting in verse four. So the the believers in Corinth had a certain level of knowledge. A true knowledge about God and about idols and about meat offered to idols. And the specific content of their knowledge won't be dealt with until verse number 4. In some, it is that they know idols are nothing. Idols are just idols. But before he gets there, Paul wants to hurry to remind them that you might have knowledge, but there's a severe danger in knowledge, even true knowledge when it's disconnected from love. Knowledge, he says in verse 1, puffs up. But love builds up. Knowledge puffs up means that it makes a person proud and can cause him to have an inflated view of himself. This is a characteristic of the fleshly mind. It's a real evil, I think, in Uh, large amounts of advanced education. People who think they are something because they have a lot of letters and periods and commas after their name. Okay, Uh, And it's present even in theological studies. This, This evil of a lot of knowledge divorced from the concept of love. Common, common example. Some young person comes to know what's called the doctrines of grace. Some of you are familiar with what that means. We might put it under the general heading of Calvinism. The doctrines of grace and and the doctrines of the Reformation. And some young person, very zealous, comes to know those things and, and the danger is that they can become very proud and look down upon others who do not understand those doctrines or perhaps who hold a different variation in some areas of those doctrines. And so what happens is, what is meant to humble mankind, the doctrines of what? Did I say? Grace. The doctrines of grace humble us. Do they not? Because salvation is all of grace. Salvation is nothing of man. Salvation is not something I attain by a certain kind of private special knowledge like I know the doctrines of grace now. I have arrived. You know, I'm a good Calvinist. 
I'm not criticizing Calvinism at all. Don't hear me saying that. I'm criticizing knowledge that puffs up in that particular example. Okay? Um, salvation is of grace. God's work is of grace. So the doctrines of grace ought to lay us low, not to raise us up because we know them. Okay? And so, what is meant to humble us, the doctrines of grace, produces in certain ones an opposite result because of the pride of knowledge. Sinners tend to do that with the gifts of God, don't they? They take the gifts of God which are meant to do one thing and they turn them into do something else. 1 Corinthians 4.7 you know, What have you that you have not received? What makes you to differ from another? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will lift you up. So the danger of having knowledge is that it can cause you to be arrogant. Christian love, on the other hand, will do everything it can to make uh, to build up others rather than to puff oneself up. So the opposite of pride is that building up of others. But when knowledge is prioritized over love, then pride is exalted. Edification does not happen. Sin occurs. And people are hurt. Paul does not speak, however, of another danger that I'll just mention here for completeness. And that is, he's he's talking about knowledge without love. But there's another danger. That is love without knowledge. As As if we suppose that love can be prioritized over knowledge and that love can have no knowledge or no discernment or no concern for truth. The latter, this is the common tendency in our own era. Just love. You know, truth is everybody's truth. Knowledge, whatever they want to know, but just love. Love without regard for knowledge. So, in my notes, uh, I think you'll see there in letter B, I said there's a severe danger in quote, knowing. If anyone prides himself on his knowledge, verse 2 says, then he does not know as he ought to know. What an irony. Knowledge held in pride is not knowledge at all. We could say it this way. Knowledge held in pride is not wisdom. We ought to know, yes, but we ought to know truth with humility. We ought to know truth, but we ought to know it with humility. Otherwise, we don't really know it. Does that make sense? Well, you have some facts. But do you really know the doctrines of grace if they puff you up? No. You don't really understand them. You have some facts about them, but you don't really understand them. Now, he moves into verse 3. He says, If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Initially, you read this and you say, Hmm... This seems a little out of place. But what it does is it puts knowledge and love in their proper relationship. It's one thing to know, but it's another thing to really truly love God. When you love God, what does it say? If anyone loves God, this one is known by Him. This means if you love God, that's a demonstration of the fact that you are saved. You love God, that demonstrates that God knows you and therefore that you are a saved person. And in this knowledge of God will be an increasing measure of humility because we are growing to be more like God. I was speaking to a brother just the other day and 
talking about humility and God receiving glory. And I said, you know, it's interesting. God is the most humble being there is. He is marked by pure, true, holy humility. We're growing to be like Him, I hope. And we see God for who He is. That such love toward Him will guide our use of what we know to be true to strengthen others instead of to promote ourselves. So when we love God, we're going to love others and we're going to use the knowledge that we have to promote the benefit and and edification of other people instead of merely ourselves. That's what pride-based knowledge does is it builds ourselves up whereas humility-based knowledge, if I can put it that way, builds up others. Now, we're going to run out of time here this morning, but I want to just touch on the area of verses 4-6 through in which the Apostle now moves to kind of begin to detail what he's been talking about generally in verses 1-3 through as it relates to the issue of meat offered to idols. So now he says, therefore, in verse 4, what he's going to do is he's going to take those three verses and now I'm going to apply them to your situation. Now, let's apply what we've just said to the situation about eating things offered to idols. And the beginning of this whole explanation down to verse 13 expresses what true knowledge really is. We've got to have that. We do. We can't ignore it. And the, and the true knowledge is simply this. Remember these three words. Idols are nothing. Verse 4. Concerning the things the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing. And furthermore, we know that there is only one God in the world. For your homework, uh, read Isaiah 44, 14-20 later. I'll just sketch it for you. You have a man there who cuts down a tree and he chops the tree in half and he heats himself with half of it, heats up his food, And then he takes the other half of it, carves it into a god, and bows down to it and says to that god, save me. It's it's a mocking portrayal of idolatry. A dead piece of wood is made into a god for that person. And Israel even had fallen into that. Even one as well placed as Amaziah, king of Judah, worshipped idols. Did you know that? Second Chronicles, I'll just go back there and read that verse for you. Second Chronicles and chapter 25, verse number 14. Now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the people of Seir. He just defeated them. And he takes their quote-unquote gods and sets them up to be his gods and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 4 to 10. We're familiar with this portion of Scripture. It says, For so it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, even as one as wise as Solomon in his old age. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. He built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He did likewise for all of his foreign wives. Had to keep the the wives happy. 
He burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. And he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. So what does he do? He goes after them anyway. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. So idols are nothing, and yet people well-placed in history have fallen into the worship of these idols. And the same thing happens in the end times in Revelation chapter 9, verse number 20. Even though God is putting it, making it clear to the people of the earth that they should abandon idolatry and follow the Lord, it says they refuse to do that, to, to abandon their idolatry and repent of their evil deeds. They persisted in their idolatry. Now, when we say that idols are nothing, we have to temper that with the truth that we'll learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 20. There it says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So in any way in which there is a reality to the worship of an idol, it's a demonic reality. They're backed, these idols, many of them by demonic powers. The idol itself is nothing, but the connection to the dark underworld of the devil is a severe problem in idol worship. So it's not like we can say idols are nothing, therefore these people that are doing this, they're just wasting their time and it's okay what they're doing. No, it's not okay what they're doing. Yes, they are wasting their time, but they're doing much worse than that. They have one or maybe both feet in the demonic realm. So that's, that tempers our understanding of this phrase, idols are nothing. But we, we recognize idols like this piece of wood are just wood or stone or metal or whatever. And then he says in verse 4, we, um, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is only one God. God is the only true and living God. Isaiah 44 again, God said, are there any other gods out there? I am listening. I don't know of any. I haven't heard of any. There are none. God makes that claim for Himself. And He tells Israel in the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's unique. There is no other. There is no other God. Logically, there can be no other gods. There is no other ultimate. The Greek and Roman pantheons, the Hindu pantheon, are figments of an overactive religious imagination. You hear that? Figments of an overactive religious imagination. Where do those imaginations come from? Man's darkened heart. The depraved heart of man. So yes, there are, as Paul indicates, many gods and many lords, except in the eyes of the Christian, those are all fake. There are, they, are no, they are not ultimates. They are not a pantheon of gods. There's only one eternal being, and this is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's it. Now today, polytheism is the default view, isn't it? I mean, if you ask a lot of people, they'll say, well, there's a lot of different ways to God, or you have you know, your way, your God, and I have my God, or you know, even in, in, um, in uh, AA you know, uh, therapy. Whatever, whatever your God is, however you perceive or conceive of your deity, just put him up there and then, and then 
move toward that so that you'll be helped in your addiction. Any God at all, regardless of how it started in the beginning, maybe well with the true God at the, at the pinnacle, but that's not the case today. Pluralism today has polytheism as an underlying uh, theistic viewpoint. Whatever your higher power is, if it works for you, that's good. But really, this is just another way of saying we are our own gods. Because we decide what our God is. We put Him up there on the throne, which means we're higher than Him. So we are our own gods, societally. That's the idea. Now, the specific identification of God is given in verse number 6. Look at this. It says, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him. And then one Lord Jesus Christ. So, one God, one Father. From Him come every, comes everything. Right? There is not one atom or subatomic particle in the universe that came from something other than the triune Christian God. Angels did not come from something else. Demons did not come from something else. The earth did not come from something else. Every single atom in the universe came from God. There is also, and by the way, he says, not only of whom are all things, and we for him. Why do we exist? I'm my, you know, this is the, this is today's philosophy. I'm my own man. I exist for myself. I exist for my own pleasure. I exist for whatever. You know, I, 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 I seize the day. It's mine. Now, the Bible says we exist for God. We exist for God's pleasure. We exist to worship God. We exist to serve God. We exist to fellowship with God's people. We are not our own. And then he says, Paul does, continuing the Christian confession that there is one Lord Jesus Christ. And now notice, it says, through whom are all things. Now, how does that fit with what we just said? Well, because it was by Him that God the Father made all things. Without Him, John 1.3 says, Jesus, without Him there was nothing made that was made. And furthermore, it says, and through whom... We live. Why are you alive right now? Because the author of life has given you life and has ordained that you should continue to have the breath of life in your nostrils and the fluid of life in your arteries and veins at this very moment. He has sustained you. That's Jesus Christ. Through whom? All things. Colossians 1.17 He upholds all things by the word of His power. Hebrews chapter 1 In verse number 3, it's through Him that all things exist. He is our our God, our Lord and the Father. He hasn't mentioned here the Holy Spirit, but we believe in, in Him as well. So the Christian confession is that God is unique and there is no other. We also confess, don't we, that Jesus is Lord? We confess that Jesus arose from the dead. Do we not? We confess that God created the world, that humans rebelled against God, that each one of us are part of the problem. We are sinners. And that the penalty of sin is death. 
We confess that Christ died for sinners. And if we repent and believe in the good news about Him, that we will be saved from eternal death. We confess that Christ is coming again. Do we not? When I say we confess, what does that mean? That means, can I say it in longer form? That is a belief that we hold dear. We speak that belief. We believe that belief. We believe that as a fact. This is something that we stand upon. We proclaim it to the world. We're telling the world that Christ is coming again. That Christ is King. That Christ will reign over the world in righteousness. That's what a Christian says. We proclaim that God is Christ is eternal. That God made all things. That the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And if you don't get right with that King, you are in big time trouble. Oh, most confessions don't say it that way, but that's what it means. Big time trouble. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's what it is. That's what we confess as Christians. And we could probably add to that list, but that gives you the basics. From the beginning, God. All the way to the end, God. From Him are all things. Through Him are all things. To Him are all things for the glory of the eternal, ever-living, infinite God. That is our Christian confession. The Apostle Paul is reflecting that and saying, where do you see idols in that? Where, where is burning a piece of meat on a specific kind of altar going to change that? It's not going to change that. It's not going to change our confession. We know all of that. That is the true knowledge that we hold. But, he's going to say next week when we get to it, that that knowledge can be used wrongly. Even that true knowledge can be used wrongly. So we need to be careful about that. But we do need to have that true knowledge. And if we don't have it, or if we're just new in the faith, we need to get up to speed on that. Because that will open up the vista of true liberty and it will help us to live our Christian life in the way that is pleasing to God. So we don't leave true knowledge behind even though we know that it's not everything in the Christian experience. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pause our message there, waiting for the next time when we can gather this way to continue to expound on what You have said through the Apostle Paul. We thank You for it. We thank You for the depth and the riches of the wisdom of God which is displayed here in the Word of God. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to put these factors together, knowledge and love and liberty and conscience, in the right proportions and right mixture so that we can honor You. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.